0: Hi and welcome to Ones and Twos, F.P.'s economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, F.P.'s deputy editor with you in Northern Virginia, outside of Washington, D.C. And as always, Adam Tooze, F.P.'s economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us this week in Bulgaria. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So we recognize that this is the first episode in the month of August yeah we thought we would uh, try dedicating the next several episodes to those country segments that we sometimes do you know obviously summer is a time of travel so we thought we'd travel the world a bit ourselves stopping at some countries that are in the news some countries that are not in the news and so yeah stick with us in the weeks ahead we'll probably be covering China For example but also some out of the way countries like bulgaria where adam is right now this week we thought we'd also do something more in the news and the data point there is 522.03 billion us dollars that was the gdp of israel in 2022 which amounts to about 54 thousand six hundred dollars per capita given israel's total population of about nine million That makes Israel about the 28th largest economy in the world, but that economic success seems to have been put at risk, perhaps, by the current Israeli government, which is a coalition of conservatives and far-right parties led by Benjamin Netanyahu. They recently passed legislation weakening the country's judiciary,
1: specifically approving a
0: provision that stops judges from striking down government decisions that they find unreasonable. Now, this vote... And that has set off unprecedented protests across Israeli society, including from the country's economic elites that have helped Make the country so wealthy. Thousands of protesters gathered here in front of Israel's Parliament and there was a cry of kind of anger and despair as the news reached the that's made the current controversies a test of the circumstances under which politics can have an effect on the economy in general. It's also raised questions of why exactly Israel is so successful in the first place. So we thought we'd try to unpack Israel's economy in general. Yeah Adam, I thought we could start with some data. Israel is considered a high-income country. Its GDP uh, ranks it number 13 in the world. It's also a country that has spent quite a bit of money on defense over the years. So how did Israel exactly become so rich? I mean, from a historical perspective, does Israel's economic success trace back to its socialist ideology? Or is it really the liberalization policies of the 80s and 90s that you know, popular literature is focused on? Is it those, those reforms that played a decisive role?
1: Yeah, I think there's a real issue of perspective here because the hype around the Israeli economy since the know, so-called reform, some people even refer to it as the transition period of the 80s and the 90s, where it supposedly cast off its socialist origins, has been so intense that it's, I think, completely distorted the country's economic history. I mean, you'd think that you know, it's, Israel in the early 70s was a poor socialist country. <laughs> I mean... I mean, if it was socialist at all, it was social democratic and its GDP per capita measured in purchasing power parity terms according to a common, you know, historical baseline, was basically at the same level as Italy's in nineteen seventy-three. It was only marginally below that of the United Kingdom, which considering where Palestine started out in the nineteen forties was an absolutely spectacular growth achievement. I mean, Israel in its current form would simply not exist without that first phase of social democratic, socialist, uh, kibbutz-anchored version of the Israeli project. It literally wouldn't exist. The entire society in its modern shape, city of Tel Aviv, for instance, all of the major areas of urban settlement are products of that first phase. And the growth rate was absolutely spectacular, as those numbers suggest, over 10% per annum. So the whole idea that somehow Israel needed to escape the cocoon of know the crippling fetters of socialism so as to achieve its potential is just silly and considering it you know this is an idea widely espoused by people who fancy themselves as tech geniuses it smacks of a a peculiar lack of basic arithmetic sense in that if you grow at you know a growth rate of four or five percent per annum which is what israel has been achieving at high pace in the 1980s. Since the 1980s, you actually do end up where Israel has ended up, which is now as a very high-income country, not at the level of the United States, but nevertheless one of the top-tier rich countries in the world. You don't. That doesn't take a miracle. It just continue, all it does is require a kind of continuation of exponential growth rates. The shock of the 70s in Israel was very intense. 70s and early 80s, and of course, it was intense everywhere. Um, Pretty much. It's very few countries which which escape a, a nasty 1970s. You've got the oil crisis, you've got the end of the easy phase of growth where you could just urbanize, modernize your agricultural system, which is what the Israelis famously did and do basic industrialization, which they also did. So all of those options expire. Then you have quite commonly political economy issues, so struggles between employers and trade unions, backed in various ways by governments, which Israel has in spades. It has a famous, you know, system of wage indexation by the early 1980s. But the really significant thing, of course, that happens to Israel um, between you know 67 and the early 1980s is a period of really large-scale warfare, uh, which Israel wins in 67, then struggles really to survive in 73, struggles for a kind of peace deal which it achieves in 79, then has a major military incursion in Lebanon. And it's really only when that begins to unwind that the Israeli economy can stabilize because defense spending goes from the 5 to 10% of GDP, which it was at in the early 60s, to 30% of GDP by 1980. And you cannot stabilize or run a stable growth regime with that kind of share of military spending, which is where it maxed out and then progressively came down. And so what we're really looking at is a peculiar instance of a fairly typical gear shift from rapid post-World War II growth to much more slow and contested and uh, uh, inflationary growth in the 70s and early 1980s, compounded by Israel's peculiar problems. Followed by, in the Israeli case, relatively successful, what you'd call neoliberal market driven growth from the late 80s, early 90s onwards. But as in everywhere else, that's actually slower than the period of the 50s and the 60s. And as in most countries, it's actually slower than it was in the 1970s because in real economic terms, the Israeli economy grew relatively rapidly in the 70s and early 80s, unsurprisingly, given the huge amount of fiscal stimulus it was receiving. The problem was inflation, and they tackled that in the mid-1980s with the famous stabilization program which Stanley Fisher put through. The kind of apple of the modern Israeli neoliberal market-driven story is the tech sector. Um, that's the apple in the eye, you know this is the real jewel in the crown. if you and it is a large tech sector by global standards, and Israel does have an exceptionally high r and d share as, as a share of GDP. It's up at South Korea's level in the four to five percent of GDP. So these are really striking numbers. But again, if you ask what's supercharging this extraordinary burst of research and development, it's the university system, which is one of the proudest legacies of that earlier period of social democratic. Israeli state building in the post-war period and if you look at the human factor that's added in that you know an absolutely crucial factor is the flow of hundreds of thousands of Jewish people from the ex former Soviet Union in the early 1990s, who came with extraordinary high levels of education provided by another socialist regime, in this case, the Soviet Union, which had extremely good technical and maths education of which the Jewish minority took ample advantage. And so, really, you know, you could say that it's a kind of ideal case of. Neoliberal stabilization gone right in the 1980s, an influx, by all means, of various types of venture capital from the 90s and early 2000s onwards, though the original venture capital firm in the Israeli case was a government-backed entity, which was then privatized, with an exceptional endowment of human capital, much of it provided by public education in Israel. So, you know, there's a real... It's a really interesting fact that this story is so often told as one of a kind of the need to overcome state control and interference so as to release growth. I think it's much better thought of perhaps as sort of stages of a rocket, you know, like where where you have the heavy lift being done by the social democratic phase. And then once you're comfortably in high to middle income range then you can dispense with some of that possibly at a price, hugely increased inequality, but nevertheless still continue at least a modest rate uh, of growth in a different regime um, into the 90s, 2000s and down to the present day. I I wonder if
0: there's another wrinkle to the state-led development history that you're describing there in the sense of whether the military itself played a role in incubating talent and driving technology. I mean, is that a kind of flip side to this development story that you're describing?
1: Well, to an extent, though, on the whole, you'd think of the military as a tax on human capital. You know, the more that men and women have to spend time, you know, learning to fire weapons, the less time they're spending on innovation they could otherwise be doing. There's no doubt that this adds very significant pressure to the Israeli um, high tech efforts in two dimensions. First, in the phase between sixty seven and the early nineteen eighties, when the Israeli military industrial complex comes under huge pressure because the French abruptly ends their intense collaboration with Israel that had enabled the Israeli military industrial complex to take off in the fifties and sixties, and that ends abruptly in sixty seven, and so then the Israelis have to nationalize quite a lot of their industrial, military industrial development. And then on the flip side of that, then the, then the running down of major military industrial projects from the mid-1980s onwards, they cancelled a national fighter jet program. Um, that, in a sense, releases an expanded core of military industrial expertise into the free market from the late 80s, early 90s onwards. Now, I mean, there's a lot of news stories, you can read them everywhere, of the intense collaboration between Israeli tech firms and the surveillance apparatus they've erected in the occupied territories. I think that's a fascinating and alarming story, um, especially given the global um, sale of the technology the Israeli firms are developing. But it's hard to say whether it really amounts to a significant share of the growth story, altogether, it's very easy to exaggerate the significance of high-tech stories in aggregate economic growth. They're often very difficult to find, as Robert Solo, the famous MIT economist, pointed out. They're often rather difficult to find in the GDP data, and Israel is no exception. Hmm. So...
0: I wanted to shift to the U.S. perspective, because when the United States tends to think about the Israeli economy, I think the issue that gets the most attention for most people is the foreign aid that the United States provides to Israel, which is more than to any other country in the world. It's up to about $3.8 billion a year right now. You know, people in the U.S. often question the policy of providing all that aid to Israel, given the strength of its economy that we were just describing, but... How much of an impact does that aid really have on Israel in the first place?
1: Yeah, I mean, the numbers are dramatic. I think it's probably worth saying that right now, unless I'm missing something, U.S. support for Ukraine is substantially larger. Um, And Israel is, in fact, often cited as an example of where the United States might be headed in its relationship with Ukraine, outside NATO, but nevertheless an essential security policy partner. But yes, if you add up the figures in You know, uh, inflation-adjusted terms over the the lifetime of the Israeli state, it's probably about three hundred billion dollars in total that have been transferred from the American taxpayer to Israel. Um, Of course, a lot of that flows back because the money is tied to arms purchases by the Israelis in the United States, and that takes us back to this point about sixty-seven. Because up to sixty-seven, France was the major supplier of weapons to Israel. And after 67, when the French cut off the supply lines and the Israelis have scored this extraordinary success in the 67 war, that's really when American aid comes to the fore. And particularly after the... Panic stations moment in '73 when it looks as though Israel might actually lose, and there's this huge surge of domestic Israeli military spending and American assistance to Israel, which tops out at a figure which was completely blew my mind when I was looking at it in the early 1980s. There's a there's a single period, and I think it has to do with the fact the Americans are actually building a base in Israel. American assistance to Israel hits like over 20% of Israeli GDP which is really a staggering staggering figure um, it is very brief and then it comes back down again and and now American aid to Israel is is only in the level of about 1% of GDP or about a fifth of Israeli defense spending so it's considerable but it's not it's not decisive the Israelis could clearly do it themselves and it's particularly as it were, sort of a question mark, I think, for the Israelis, because it is tied tied to the requirement to spend money on American weapons, so the money flows back. And to that extent, as with all aid of this type, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, because the more money you take from the Americans, the less you spend on your own military, right? So if you're buying, so in a sense, like if you're buying your fighter jets from the Americans, you're not developing your own. And the Israeli ambition in the early age was to, you know, was to acquire famously steel, French technology and then adapt it and make their own make their own aircraft. And and they've largely moved away from doing that. So there's a displacement effect, a kind of you might call it like a Dutch disease. Um, but obviously, the Israelis still have a formidable military industrial establishment of their own. One percent of GDP is where we're at. That's the kind of ballpark. So let's talk about the occupation of the West Bank. Israel obviously
0: maintains military rule over millions of Palestinians, and servicing that occupation costs money. You know, So does building settlements for Jews in the West Bank and incentivizing people to live there with tax benefits, et cetera, that kind of thing. But Israel also profits from the occupation in direct and indirect ways. It benefits from mining, And other forms of extraction, I guess you could argue that the settlements even help moderate housing prices throughout Israel by providing more space, more housing for Jews. So how should we think about the occupation from an economic standpoint? Does Israel's occupation pass any kind of cost-benefit analysis? And what kind of insight can the history of colonialism lend to this kind of policy? Under what conditions can occupation work at all as an economic policy?
1: Well, I think it is fair to say that, from an economic point of view, is the entire Israeli project is a you know highly successful settler colonial project. Um, it's one of the last in the twentieth century. It's unusual in that the settler population establishes a decisive majority within the territory and though it expels a large part of the Palestinian population, a substantial fraction remains. On the other hand, it's not South Africa, where the majority is, in that case, of course, black, and the, the whites constitute a, a minority of population. So it's a unusual balance. Currently, the settler population, um, the Jewish settler population, in relation to the Jewish population of Israel, is about 10%. So it's a, it's a non-trivial fraction. I, it's hard to see... Cam, that it constitutes a substantial relief. I mean, it's I, I hard, find it hard to imagine that this is a you know a substantial relief valve on the real estate situation in Israel. Maybe maybe you've seen you know, other arguments. Clearly, expanding space does that, but this is really an ideologically led project. I mean, in some sense, you know, Zionism was always, of course, a blend of ideology with a pragmatic politics of actual state making and society making, and so the two have always been entwined, but in the case of the settlers in the West Bank um, and in East Jerusalem, I mean, it's emphatically an ideologically driven program first. But that doesn't mean that interests, economic interests aren't entangled with it. I mean, critically on the ground, of course, systematically favoring Israeli settlers over the local Palestinian population. And that's really where I think the economics of this just breaks down entirely because the net effect of the program is obviously to devastate to the tune of tens of billions of dollars a year what could be thriving mixed Arab-Israeli, Palestinian-Israeli communities that could have you know, dense and highly successful and prosperous commercial interactions and instead are reduced to a state of You know, appalling guerrilla near guerrilla warfare with with violence on both sides and systematic and hugely asymmetric violence, of course, and massive systematic discrimination against the Palestinian communities which are trying to make a living for themselves and in many cases uh, reduced to just outright poverty. So we're really talking about a an you know, in a acornocidal kind of project of of destruction. In in many cases, quite deliberately so, so as to undermine the viability of the Palestinian communities and and stabilize the grip of the of the Jewish settlers who claim this as as Eretz Israel, as the as the land biblically promised to them. So, at this point, I think you know when you're in that kind of territory, analysis in terms of economics is about tactics, is about how a settler population secures itself. It's not really about the deep the underlying motive and that's also felt by the israeli population which has to fund this and does fund this to a considerable extent this isn't to say the settlers don't generate economic uh, output of course they do but the question mark is the question is like does it pay for itself and the answer is not in the way that other projects do this is one area in which the israeli state continues to you know, engage in very heavy subsidy. What's really striking is the recent moves by Israel to, if you like, overcome the huge economic damage that supporting the settler project does to its relations with its neighboring arab states all of which should be leading trading partners of israel and can't be given the way in which the current government is behaving in the in the in the uh, occupied territories but nevertheless through the abraham accords you know um, israel is finding the possibility of new partnerships with truly economically potent arab counterparts notably the uae which has gone in with israel in its very promising eastern mediterranean gas developments and According to the UAE side, sees a huge surge in bilateral trade between Israel and the UAE extending out to about $10 billion by 2030. So there are players out there that um, Israel can find to offset what is otherwise, in economic terms, both an expensive strategy for Israel and a ruinous strategy for its relations with its Arab neighbors and devastating for the Palestinian population in the occupied territories and themselves. Okay, we're going to take a
0: quick break right here and we'll be back in a second to talk more about the economy of Israel and specifically the impact of the government's judicial overhaul. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Center for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we are back. So let's now talk about the changes that Netanyahu's government is trying to impose on the judicial system that I mentioned. Essentially, his government wants to limit the powers of the Supreme Court quite dramatically. And as a result, many thousands of Israelis are protesting each week. But it's not only that. High-tech companies are pulling out of the country. Moody's has warned investors of significant economic risk as a result of that. And I'm wondering just how much damage this legislation could do to the Israeli economy. I mean, can we look at, say, Hungary or Poland, where there's been a similar lurch towards authoritarianism and draw some useful comparisons? Or is Israel especially dependent, more so than those other countries, on foreign investment and therefore more vulnerable to these kinds of shifts that are threatening to happen?
1: I mean, Israel does have a relatively high foreign direct investment share. The numbers I've seen put it at about 4% of GDP, which is much higher than the average, but but not overwhelmingly high. Um, significant, but not overwhelming. I think the comparisons with Hungary and Poland cause one to be, on the whole, relatively, I mean, assuming one 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 sides with the protesters against the Netanyahu's measures, they make one feel relatively pessimistic about the likely long-run leverage of international capital, because despite the evident trend in both Hungarian and Polish politics, there has been no shortage of for win- investors willing to pile money into those countries, very little obvious sign of any desire to pull out, and um, that goes also for you know even more egregious and intense and serious cases like China, where as well we have seen a real stickiness of investment once it goes in. Now it's possible that the particular valence of the Arab-Israeli, the Palestinian issue, you know, has a has a different character. But on the whole, you would say that, you know, what we know, what is sometimes called democratic backsliding, which is a rather kind of normative and teleological way of looking at this, but it, it hasn't on the whole, you know, led to massive investor strikes, which have caused a serious rethink of the policies of of any of the major protagonists. In fact, on the whole you know, they've benefited from really complacent foreign investment. So, and, you know, people say, well, the tech ecosystem of Israel can be duplicated elsewhere. I mean, that may be true up to a point, but in practice also those systems are quite sticky. And I wouldn't be that optimistic that you could actually, those kind of clusters of intensely, um, you know, expert communities are in fact quite difficult to move. So, you know, I, I mean, you, you, you can see the kind of, you know, the liberal excitement around this and it's a familiar story and we've seen it over and over again. I'm not, I'm not sure it fills me with any great optimism, but, but um, and certainly, you know, if one thinks about Brexit, for instance, um, you know, the timeline can be quite, can be quite slow, um, certainly too slow to make much difference to the politics, which runs mm-hmm. rampant and, ram- and, you know, goes on a rampage. And then it takes five years, 10 years for the impact on investment to be felt, by which point it's just basically pain compounding the political damage that's being done, rather than an economic weapon, if you like, that causes an adjustment in politics.
0: Uh, Yeah, that does sound rather more pessimistic, but yeah, maybe also just more realistic when it comes to the calculations made by, by investors. Finally... I guess I wanted to ask about the protests. It does seem that they are being led by the economic elites, in any case, in Israel. Uh, You know, generally the more educated, the higher income earners. Many of these Israelis have second passports, and you hear, at least anecdotally, a lot of people talking about leaving the country entirely as a result of these political shifts. You know, that could cause, in theory, a brain drain of some proportion, but... That got me wondering, are brain drains even real? I mean, what percentage of a country's upper echelon would need to leave for it to have a real impact on the economy? And is that even conceivable in the Israeli case right now?
1: I mean, I I think brain drains, brain drains are real. Um, being a second generation brain drainer. Um, so they are real. Whether or not they do damage, you know, to the GDP level, I think is a more open question. And this question really was is interesting. I didn't un- I didn't know this, but um, Israel actually had punitive taxation in place through to the early sixties to prevent emigration, and a very a very coy about um, publishing emigration data. So the data that we have on on the number of Israelis living outside the country is is uh, as far as I'm able to tell. I mean, I I, I think the consensus figure is about seven hundred thousand but they keep much closer tabs on the on on the aliyah you know so called as it were the movement of of jews back to or back what a phrase like what is the appropriate non teleological non zionist phrasing of this like the movement of jewish people to israel i guess is the neutral way of formulating that and those data those data show a um very considerable shift in the balance apparently in the last 12 months with um, two offsetting effects, a reduction in the flow of Jewish people from almost everywhere in the world to Israel, with one exception, and that's Russia. With, um, In fact, I know colleagues who have fled Russia to Israel in the last 12 months to, to escape the horror of, of you know, the escalating repression of Putin's regime and, and the war. I think there's an interesting it is tr- it is truly striking to see and again there are analogies to moments like Brexit the or, or Trump for that matter the degree to which elites not just economic but I mean perhaps most strikingly the military elite are voicing and articulating their opposition there's another thing though about elites which is quite interesting and really took me aback when I dug into this, which is they tend to be on the older side, because you don't, you know, you don't get to be powerful until you're in generally speaking, until you're in middle age or or older. And what this exposes is that there's apparently a really stark difference in the age across ages in Israel on the issue of nationalism and you know willingness to believe in a two-state solution and so on. And it's the older Israelis. Um, who are actually more liberal and more um, inclined to, to cling to the idea, you know, the older ideas of a peace settlement. Whereas, seventy-three percent of Israelis between the ages of eighteen and twenty-four self-identify as right-wing. Seventy-three percent, whereas only forty-six percent of Israelis, uh, Jewish Israelis, this is in both cases, over sixty-five do. And similar, there's a similar disparity on the two-state solution. So young Israelis are very pessimistic about it, and sort of a bare majority of older Israelis um, believe in it. And that's that's really, I thought, quite quite staggering. And it isn't explained in terms of the demographic factor, in that the Orthodox and the ultra-Orthodox have more children. Um, it's partly explained by that, but that that's it's not that's not enough to fully account for this. So you could almost think of these protests. I mean, this may do a complete injustice to them. And to be honest, I found it quite difficult to find data on the, the socio, you know, economic composition of the protesters. Um, but, and I know many, you know, many, I'm, I'm now in the older generation, but I know younger people who have protested too. Um, but, um, but this is something really, I thought I really took me aback that the, that's the, the younger generations who are presumably better educated than their, than their parents and grandparents are actually more right-wing and more inclined, therefore one presumes, I guess, to support the positions of this government. Interesting. I mean, yeah, one thing I found remarkable, and
0: perhaps this is related to this point, is that it seems like the protesters have been at pains not to suggest that they're, coming from the left. I mean, they they have embraced, you know, the symbol is the Israeli flag, you know, it sort of seems to be trying to create a a message that their opposition is not being motivated by liberal or leftist ideas.
1: Yeah, no, it's adherence to the values of the state, isn't it? Though The military statement was really striking on this, that they were willing to sacrifice their lives and their souls, <laughs> their souls, right, for for the Israeli state, but not for this. Not for a dictatorship, as they put it. So, um, yeah, really an extraordinary disjuncture here um, in a in a in a state which, for a long time, really was perhaps the single most dramatic instance of a state anchored whose legitimacy was anchored in a civic religion. Um, you know, an explicitly secular, but in a sense religiously infused um, patriotism. Um, to, to be faced with this kind of crisis. It's really very dramatic.
0: Well, I think we have to leave the conversation here for now, but I think we covered a lot of ground from the protests to the entire history of Israel. Yeah, perhaps we'll have occasion to return to the subject at some point. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos, it is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TOOZE at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com. Or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. Or tweet us. That's at OnesandTwosPod. Thanks very much for listening. And we will see you back in your feed next week.